Lord, I pray that you would, um, that you would be present now and that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, uh, all of us have to deal with the subject matter that we're going to look at this morning. It's, it's in the air around us, and all of us are going to have to wrestle with it on some level. And Lord, those that have um, many years of life remaining on this earth have a, a special calling from you to, uh, to be salt and light, to be people of influence in this world. And what we're going to look at this morning is going to be a particular challenge for them. And so I pray that you would spark in them, Lord, a hunger to, to be people who understand their times and know what the people of God ought to do. I pray that you would speak to them and that you would direct them and that you would help them. And I pray that you'd give us all the grace that we need today, the grace to speak and the grace to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. All I can do is ask again that to the best of your ability, you put your thinking caps on and that you be ready. Um, uh, this is, this is uh, not going to be close to the last word on this subject. In fact, um, my encouragement to you is you should probably pick up a book or two on the subject or uh, at the very least um, go to YouTube and Google the subject and uh, not Google it, go to YouTube and YouTube the subject. <laughs> And, uh, and watch some videos on the subject, okay? Because there's a ton of information out there. So three weeks, three weeks devoted to the, uh, to the young adults here. I'd like you to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I want to read just four verses this morning. 1 Timothy 6, I want to read verses 11 through 14. 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 14. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to just do a quick summary of this passage real quickly because uh, over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to take uh, three ideas out of this passage, one for this week, one for next week, and one for the third week. Uh, so we're going to be in this passage for three weeks. But I'm not going to focus so much specifically on the text as I am going to focus on some of the ideas that are in this text. But I, I at least first, this morning, want to, want to just do a quick run-through and give a quick overview of the text so that we can at least say that we've, we've addressed the text and, and put these ideas in their setting, okay? So let me start with a, uh, with a brief summary. Whoops, let me turn this on. Let me start with a brief summary. This passage begins with, flee from these things, you man of God. Paul was writing to Timothy, and he, and he calls him, you man of God. It's a, it's a weighty and 
uh, it's a weighty uh, uh, name, it's a weighty way to refer to somebody that has a great deal of force behind it. When, when someone calls you a man of God, what's your immediate reaction? How many of you, your immediate reaction is, I'm not that good? How many of you, that would be your immediate reaction? I don't, I don't feel like I deserve to be called you man of God, right? I think a lot of us would feel that initial, eh, I think you called me by the wrong name, okay? Um, and so there's a very real sense in which when somebody refers to someone else that way, they're provoking in them, hopefully anyways, the ambition to rise up higher, right? To... to to, well, if, if, I'm, if, I'm, if there's ways that I'm not living up to that, the fact that somebody reminds me that that's who I'm supposed to be is a motivation to, to move in that direction. Um, there's, a, there's an old phrase that was sometimes used that, is, uh, that I think is helpful, that, that is easy to forget. There's great value in learning to kiss the hand that smites you. There's great value in learning to kiss the hand that smites you. What do I mean by that? I mean, um, children, for example, if, uh, and I'm not talking now literally about your parents hitting you or smacking you, but I'm just going to say, let's just use the word discipline, okay? When your parents discipline you, you can either tighten up, get bitter about it, get mad at it, and refuse to receive the correction they're giving, Or you can kiss the hand that smites you. You can say to your mom and dad, thank you for the correction. I'm taking it to heart. Right? It's challenging to do that. It's not easy to do that. There's something that rises up within us that doesn't want to receive correction. Some of us are very, very hard to correct. It's it's difficult for us to receive a word of correction from someone else. And, and, the, and the, 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 the willingness, the heart willingness to say, I'll take it, I'll profit from it, I'll receive from it, is, is one that wars against what comes naturally to some of us. Paul here refers to Timothy as a man of God. Now, in specific, I, I just want to remind everyone, because we went through the previous passage a few weeks ago, when he says, when he says to, uh, to Timothy, you man of God, he is, he is setting that in contrast with the people that he's been talking about in the previous passage. In the first 10 verses of 1 Timothy 6, he's talking about false teachers that are in love with money. They, they teach the way they teach because they get something from it. There's two great ambitions that false teachers have. It's always aimed at benefiting them. They want lots of followers and they want lots of money. Lots of followers, lots of money, right? And, and, and they, they have this, this for-profit mentality, right? They, they do what they do for profit. They, they want to gain something from it. So Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, you're going to be in a position in the church. You're going to lead the church of Ephesus. And I want you to be a man of God. Unlike these other false teachers who do what they do for their own sakes. They do it for their their own selfish interests, to get something for themselves. 
They do it in order to gain followers and to gain profit. Timothy, I want you to do what you do because you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you love the church of God, and I want you to serve it well. I want you to do for the church what the church needs, not what's going to be the most profitable for you necessarily. And listen, how many of you know that anytime somebody has to lead something and they do it, they do it honestly, there are going to be times that they're going to have to do things that they don't want to have to do that are at personal risk to them. But it's the right thing to do. Right? It's the correct thing to do. And so Timothy is here being referred to as a man of God because Paul is saying to him, I want you to flee, and that's the second part of this, I want you to flee the things that I've just talked about. Flee from these things, you man of God. Flee from the things these false teachers are about. Now, real quickly on the word flee. The New Testament uses the word flee in two ways. It, it, it gives this instruction to believers in two ways. The first, time, the, the first way is it tells us that there are times when it is appropriate to flee persecution. When it's okay to flee persecution. There's specific instructions that, for example, Jesus gave to the people uh, of Israel when he was talking in Matthew 24. There's going to be times you're going to see things happen. There's going to be armies coming against Jerusalem. When you see these things happen, flee to the wilderness. Right? Flee to the wilderness. So that's an example of, of the instruction to flee. To flee. One of the things that happened in the early church is that under persecution, Christians fled. They, they spread throughout the earth. And, and the, the beautiful thing about it is that when they fled, they didn't flee incognito. They would, they would head to places where they could be more immediately safe, but they didn't hide the fact that they were Christians. And as a result, the gospel spread. Right? The gospel was spreading. Why? Because as Christians fled, the gospel spread. They were sharing the gospel everywhere they went. Okay? There's times to flee. There are times to flee. The second thing that we're told about uh, fleeing in the New Testament is that we're to flee temptation. You are to run away from temptation. Listen, if there's something that you know is a temptation to sin in your life, don't put yourself in the place to be tempted. Right? I mean, listen, there's going to be enough that you're going to have to deal with that's going to come to you unsought after. Don't, don't put yourself in a position where you're in front of something that you know you're going to be easily tempted by. Flee from temptation. Run away from temptation. Stay far away from temptation. Now, let me, just, let me just real quickly, one more word on this. Fleeing is not something God's going to do for you. He's not going to reach down from heaven, grab you by the top of the head, lift you up, and move you somewhere else. You're going to stay away from temptation. You're going to have to move away from it. You're going to have to get away from it. You're going to have to get away from it yourself. You know... Here, here's the way God has moved you away from temptation. By telling you to flee. He's done his part. 
Flee from temptation is what he says to us. Now it's our responsibility to flee from temptation. These two things we're supposed to flee. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, when Paul says to Timothy, flee, he's telling him to flee all of those sins that these false teachers are a part of. And if you want to go back, you can read the previous 10 verses and you'll find a list of sins that these false teachers were guilty of. Loving money, they are strife, they're rabble-rousers, they cause arguments, they make fights between people. There's a whole list of things that, that Paul gives as characteristics of false teachers. And Paul tells Timothy, flee from those sins. Flee from them, right? Temptation and sin, you flee from that. The third thing to note in this passage is that false teachers seek financial gain. Men of God, instead, seek something very different. And the things that men of God seek is the list of characteristics in verse 11. Flee from these things, but instead pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. All right? Everybody, for one second, I'm going to read the list again. I'd like you to take a second to think, which is the one that I either need most or that I struggle with the most? And just purpose in your heart that you're going to make that a matter of prayer this week. God, help me with this. You ready? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. Timothy, you flee the money-loving character of false teachers. You flee from that. That's what false teachers seek after. But you're a man of God. Men of God seek for something else. Let them seek for money. Let them seek for the acclaim and the fame of large followings. You, man of God, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, endurance, right, and gentleness. You pursue those things. Which is the one that you most need right now? That's the call of character to a man of God or a woman of God. Fourth from this passage, he says, Timothy, you have openly professed or openly confessed. You made a profession of faith and you did it openly before men. You made an open profession in the presence of many witnesses. And it's interesting that he goes on to say that Jesus also made a confession, a good confession before Pilate. In other words, it seems that an open confession is something that all believers have to at some point practice because they're following in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus made an open confession before Pilate. Right? You and I are going to be called to confess the Lord Jesus Christ before men. He made a confession. It was uh, a confession that was related to his death on the cross for us. You and I are going to have to confess him before men. Timothy had confessed the Lord Jesus Christ before men. Uh, uh, who was it? 
somebody in here old enough to remember old Christian music? Um, uh, under, what, what, who was that? Undercover Christian, your faith is rarely seen. I wish you were either hot or cold because you're really no use to me. And those lyrics, uh, anybody remember them? Maybe remember who sang them. Um, we can't live undercover. We're supposed to be open about who we are. You know what's amazing to me? Is that we seem to be living in a day when people are getting more and more comfortable being open about certain things that when you step back and you say, I, I wouldn't want to walk around being open about that in my life. But we Christians are the ones that hide out in the closet, <laughs> right? We must uncloset ourselves. Come out of the closet, believer, and be open about who you are. I'm not talking about rude. I'm just saying unashamed of who you are. I'm a Christ follower, follower of Jesus Christ, a good confession, okay? Fifth, we're, t we're told here about the commandment. So uh, I talked about this before, so I'm just going to mention it briefly. Paul says to keep the commandment that I've given you. The commandment is to flee from the false teachers and their interests. Flee from them. He gives Timothy a lot of instruction in this book. Keep the commands that I've given you. Keep the instructions that I've given to you. Obey them. Um, I'll just say very quickly, you can read the chapter. You can read the whole book and say, well, let me notice every command in the, in the book of 1 Timothy that Timothy was supposed to obey. And then you can expand it from there and say, let me give a reading to the New Testament and, and make a list of the commands that I'm supposed to obey as a Christian. Keep the command, right? Keep the command that has been given to us. The sixth thing he says is to fight the good fight. To fight the good fight in this passage. Fight the good fight. This phrase... When we think of a fight, we, we have certain imagery that comes to mind. It's, it, it's not a word that was originally used for war. It was a word that was originally used for athletics. It has the idea of contending or competing. Okay? Contending, to contend with. It was, it was, uh, it's an idea, uh, it's an idea that carries with it the fact that if you're going to contend in the games, you're going to have to pay a price for it. You're going to have to pay a price for it. Top-level athletes can't get away with, with some of the things that you and I let ourselves get away with. Because the razor-edge difference between a champion and a runner-up is very small. Right? And, and, and it, it often ends up being the person that is the most devoted, the most disciplined, the most willing to, to, to um, well, if I'm really honest, to torture themselves physically. Right? They're the ones that end up furthest ahead and having the greatest opportunities to win, right? To fight the good fight. The ancient games um, were things like running, and wrestling and boxing, that's the arena that's being talked about here, right? Fight the good fight, Timothy. There's a contending that you must do. There's a contending that we must do 
And what he says is, fight the good fight of faith. There's a contending that we must do for the faith of Jesus Christ. Now, scholars debate whether it should be fight the good fight of faith or fight the good fight of the faith. In a way, it doesn't really matter, but let me just give you the idea of it. What do we mean by the faith? I wrote it out there in a full sentence. The faith, or faith, refers to, in this case, the body of truth, the whole body of truth, especially the truth of salvation through Jesus Christ that makes up New Testament Christianity. The body of truth. In a very special way, the truth about Jesus Christ as the Savior. But the whole body of truth that makes up New Testament Christianity. We are called to contend for that faith. We're called to contend for it. In other words, um, please don't misunderstand. Sometimes we feel like in our generation we're in a worse place than anybody's ever been. It's harder for us than it's ever been for everybody. Things are worse than they've ever been. And it's just not true. Every generation has, the, has its fight that it has to fight. I mean, I'm living where I'm living right now. I'm thankful that I didn't live under Caesar Nero. They had a different fight. I'm, I'm glad I didn't have to deal with that one. Okay? Every generation, and in fact, in the same generation, it often depends on where, which part of the world you in, you're in determines what kind of a battle you're, you're dealing with, what your fight is. i got to just stop here for a second because I'm getting distracted. Are a bunch of you getting cold? Okay. I don't know if I can do anything about that. <laughs> I just wanted to acknowledge it so that it's done. <laughs> I'm sorry. I talked about this last week. Um, uh, if you're next to somebody that it would be appropriate and you're cold, ask them to put the, their arm around you. <laughs> okay? Do that. There you go. We have a faith that we have to contend for. We have a faith that we have to contend for. The truth, listen to this, it's a truth that contends and contests for the souls of men. That's why the gospel, the truth about Jesus Christ as the Savior, is the key to this. All right? And this is what I want to focus on before we close this morning. I want to focus on that phrase, the truth, the, that word, truth. We fight the good fight of faith. By faith is meant the body of truth, especially the truth of salvation through Jesus Christ that makes up New Testament Christianity. The word is truth for this morning that I want to focus on. Truth. My brothers and sisters, we are in a crisis of truth. In our world, we're in a crisis of truth. I believe we're in a crisis of truth for two reasons. The first reason is we're in a crisis of truth because we're in a crisis of trust. We don't know who to believe anymore. Come on. That was, I, I was expecting like a bigger response at that point. <laughs> okay. How many of you find yourself having a hard time knowing who to believe anymore? There's so many voices saying so much stuff. 
It's hard to know who to believe. You don't know. It seems like everybody's got an agenda. And so what they're saying is geared to promoting their agenda. And it's like you try to fact check and even you don't know if you can trust the sources that you're fact checking from. So now you gotta, you're not sure if the fact checkers are really true. It's a mess because we got a crisis of trust. I, listen, we're living in a world where it seems like everybody is held in suspicion. Everybody is suspicious of everybody. I worked the polls recently. Um, I've started doing this with the other poll workers. I, 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 uh, I, um, I did an over-under with them. I set a number. Here's the number. Uh, it, was, it was fairly low this time because people are getting used to it. But in our district, we have to fill out ballots where we have to write with the Sharpies. We have to Sharpie, we have to color it in. If uh, I'm the machine operator, that's what I do. I'm the person in charge of the machine. I mean, the, the question that I get asked over and over and over again, hey, this bleeds through. This bleeds through. How's that going to affect? Did it bleed through onto anything that's going to be read on the other side? No. Don't worry about it. Now, listen, I'm going to tell you right honestly, I, I, um, I think every once in a while they put out instructions to poll workers. Every once in a while I think they're doing it because of me, okay? <laughs> not because I'm a narcissist. It's because I've done some of the things that they send out word later you're not supposed to do. Like, for example, with one person I was just feeling in kind of a, you know, whatever mood I was in. And, hey... Um, what's going to happen? I said, don't worry about it. Just put the machine in. It's going to vote however it wants to vote anyways. <laughs> I, I, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That's not true. But I did it. Listen, I did it in a way to just say, what do you want me to do? You, fill, you came here and filled out a ballot. The only thing to do with the ballot is to stick it in the machine. That's all you can do with it. Stick it in the machine. Okay, but listen, the, 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 um, I, I turned around to one of the poll workers afterwards, I said, what I was really tempted to say is, the machine's going to send it straight to China, and then it's going to come back. <laughs> but you get the point. Nobody trusts anything anymore. Nobody tr now, I'm not making a comment about whether you should trust it or shouldn't trust it. I'm just saying nobody trusts anything anymore. You go to the ballot, you go to the polls, you fill out a ballot, you put it in a machine. Literally, we, I, I'm having people come through, I wish we would just go back to paper ballots. And what I said is, man, when we did paper ballots, people were complaining because somebody's got to count them. And when somebody counts them, they can make up any number they want. Oh, at least there's a paper record. Well, there's a paper record here too. Well. Yeah, but those machines, well, okay, I can't speak for the machine. All I can do is tell you, we're voting electronically and we have, have a paper record. If anybody does anything with it, I don't know. I, I just, I don't know. I'm just running the machine. I'm sorry, right? But what you're dealing with is regularly people coming in and out that you see in a crisis of trust. They don't know if they can believe what's happening in front of them. They don't know what to do with it. And we're getting conditioned to live in a world where we don't know what or who to believe anymore. 
It's a crisis of trust. The second thing is we're not even sure if there's truth at all anymore. We're not sure if anybody can say there's truth anymore. Because listen, at, at, at this point, at this point, there is a truth that if you don't agree with it and you speak a different truth, you're a bigot. It's a, it's a, we, we are in a battle today. We're in a battle today. Largely, it's, 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 for, for many, it revolves around, I don't know what's true at all anymore. I don't even know if there is a truth. And so we've got people using phrases like, well, it's my truth and your truth. That would have never been said in previous generations because the truth is the truth. Nobody owns it. The truth is independent of all of us, right? And, and you don't get to have your truth. Previous generations would say things like this. You're allowed to have your own opinions, but you're not allowed to have your own facts. Now we've said, forget that. Your truth, my truth, everybody gets to pick their own truth. You can have your own facts. Didn't used to be that way. We have, we have a serious battle on our hands. We're not sure if there's any truth, at least not in the sense of anything that applies to everybody that's universal or that is absolute, applies to everyone equally. That, that proposition has, has, has definitely fallen out of vogue and is very much in question today. All right. I'm taking way longer than I intended. Let me try to run as fast as I can. This is going to be unfair. Let me just ask you guys, if you don't know a whole lot about postmodernism, please take some time this week, look up a video, and pay some attention to what's being said. You're going to have to work. Postmodernism is like chasing shadows. Amen. Okay? It's, it's not going to be simple. All right? It's... Um, uh, in fact, some philosophers aren't even sure it's really a thing. Some philosophers say it's not an idea, it's not an act, because it's not an actually a, a, a coherent set of propositions. They refer to it as a mood. It's a cultural mood. This is the mood people are in, right? Now, most put it in the category of a philosophy, but many of them are saying it's not coherent enough to be a philosophy. So it's a mood. It's a vague set of ideas that people have absorbed that really is not in a, in a package that can make total sense. It just kind of puts them in a certain mood. And, and we need to be aware of this. It's, it's, it's the mood that is kind of dominant in the world right now in many arenas, okay? I'm just going to do this really fast. How did we get here? How did we get here? Well, the history of Western philosophy is long and it's complicated. I just, one way of categorizing it, ancient, medieval, renaissance, modern, contemporary, okay? These are, these are five periods that some recognize as being five distinct philosophical periods that are, that are worth dividing history into. For our purposes, let me just give you three really big ideas really fast. The first is, in the, in the pre-scientific world, everything was supernatural. Everything was supernatural. People lived 
with a sense of the supernatural being around them and present with them all the time. Um, uh, I don't forget, day before yesterday maybe, was one of the first times this year I heard really loud thunder. You know, as the seasons change and you get into, you hear that thunder for the first time, you go, hey, we're getting, we're getting towards spring, right? We're, we're getting, getting towards summer because the thunder clouds are starting to form and we're hearing, you're hearing thunder. Well, in the ancient world, that would have been something like the gods are angry. Why? They had no science to explain thunder. The gods are angry. And they lived with a constant sense of another world that had direct access to this world, they lived with a sense of we have to, have to account in our lives for a supernatural realm that is very much present and interactive with us. Okay? They lived in that world, but that was a pre-scientific world. Okay? The second, the second idea is that from a supernatural world, we moved to a natural world. That is materialism. And, and we moved from faith to human reason. I put faith in, in, in quotation marks because I'm not talking about, like the, at one time the world was a Christian world full of Christian faith. It's paganism. We believe in many gods. To where eventually... Science kept pushing the boundaries, pushing the boundaries, pushing the boundaries, offering explanations, offering explanations, until eventually you get to a place where you say, man, I, I'm starting to think there's a natural explanation for everything. And now there's no supernatural at all anymore. There's only the natural. There's only the natural. Nothing but the natural. Well, some things we don't have explanations for, eventually we'll get there. There's got to be a natural explanation for everything. And so the world switched from a world in which the thinking was primarily supernatural to a world in which it was primarily natural, that is, materialism, that the only thing that exists is the physical matter of this world. And it shifted from a world of faith, even if it was wrong faith, to a world of we just believe that human reason can figure it all out. Now, listen, by the way, if, if you want to know the closest thing to a religion in the world that we have today, all you have to do is listen because the media, the, the news people, um, the, 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 the modern day, the modern day preachers of the modern day religion is scientists preaching science. Do you listen to the science? The scientists say, right? And that's, that's what everyone should bow down because the scientists say, okay? Now, my intention is not to slam science this morning. It's just simply to say that this is where, this is where attention is most fixated in our day, is on science. And, and unfortunately, what that has meant for many is that God has been pushed out the back door. That God has been pushed out the back door. The third thing is that we've shifted from modernism to postmodernism. And I'm going I'm to just real quickly describe postmodernism to you. What are the main ideas behind postmodernism? Let me just do it in four, four parts. I'm, I'm really going fast. You're going to have to pay some attention to this on your own if you want to really follow the rest of this, okay? Just real quick. Understanding postmodernism for, for just a couple moments. Under modernism, the, 
the way that reason was viewed was like this. We ought to be able to reason by argument and universal rationality is a thing. People are intelligent the world over. We ought to be able to reason together, come up with arguments. We can discuss things and and whoever has the best argument, that will be the truth that prevails. Okay? Well, under postmodernism, that has switched. It's been replaced by reason that is not argumentally based or that is, that is universally rational, but instead it is reason that is all contextual and all relative. Well, it depends on where you live and who you are and what your experiences are. And, and hey, in the end, we can't really say for sure that anything is absolutely true, at least not as it applies to everybody, because, hey, I don't know what your context is. Everything becomes relative in postmodernism. Everything becomes relative. So we can have a discussion. We can have a discussion. Let's just say, here's, here's kind of the way it, it would be that, that might be frustrating for some of us. You can have a discussion with someone. Your, your argument and I don't mean in the sense of the fight, I just mean your, your ideas are 10 times more logical and more reasonable to them th th than theirs are, rather. And at the end, they'll just look at it and they'll say, well, that's your truth, I have my truth. And you'll go, but your truth didn't make any sense. But, but it's my truth. And under postmodernism, that's perfectly reasonable, perfectly fine, right? Because there is no absolute truth to adhere to. There's no, well, let's reason together and find out which is the best idea. It's just, well, you have yours and you have yours. It's all context and it's all relative, right? And so, um, you know what you feel like? You feel like you, you, uh, you trained, you trained for six months to be the best boxer in the arena. And you got in the arena, and they said, your opponent tonight is going to be a ghost. <laughs> and you're not going to see him. Oh, by the way, when he hits you, you won't feel it either. And when you punch at him, all you're going to do is break a sweat. But you're not going to hit anything. And when it's all said and done, we're going to say, well, that was a great fight. Nobody wins. <laughs> yeah. well, man, it doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of point to that. And there's a lot of that in the mood of the world that we're living in today. Everything's relative. So you can have the, the discussion, and you can work hard at it. And when you're done, everybody goes, hey, did that make any sense? I guess for you. Yeah, but I was, it was one brain talking to another brain. Does it make any sense to you? Eh, it's your truth. Right? Reason has changed. Reason has changed. History has changed. We used to look for universal patterns found in historical facts. It has changed to experiential interpretations of history. Experiential interpretations of history. Well... Who gets to tell the story of history? 
Who gets to tell the story of history? So it goes like something like this. Um, well, history isn't either true or false. You see, history depends on whether you were a Western colonizer or an American Indian. Yeah, but the facts were the same for both of them. No, they weren't. You have to understand that history depends on who you are. History depends on who you are. It's experiential and it's interpretive. Right? And so it can be, it can be hard. One of the challenges that you're going to have to face is that, that under postmodern thinking, telling them that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save men from their sins is... is well, it's challenging because they don't, they don't accept the idea that there's a fact in history that must be reckoned with. Everything is just open to, to interpretation, to interpretation. It's almost like this. This would be my way of explaining it. It's almost like this. If you can make everything nothing, then you have nothing to... <laughs> to aim at, to go back to, right? There, there, there's nothing you can grab a hold of. History. The third thing that happened under postmodernism is this. The idea of self. Th there were some errors in modernism. In modernism, the individual was glorified. By the way, um, modernism was not equal to Bible truth. Okay, it had problems. But for the sake of it, we'll just take it like this this morning. Under postmodernism, uh, there is no one true way of recounting a personal history. So there's no true way to determine someone's identity. If you don't get anything else, you're going to walk away from this going, man. Postmodernism is one, confusing, and two, is unclear about everything. And you get, and yes, that will be the case. It is unclear about everything. We used to have this idea that there was a self, and that a self had a history that could be determined, could be tracked, they could remember it. This is who they are. The idea now is that there's no one true way of recounting personal history, and the result of that kind of thinking is that there's not one true way to determine a person's identity. And that's why we can have things like gender fluidity. Because, well, there's not one way to determine who I really am. Today I might be feeling like I'm this, and tomorrow I might feel like I'm this. And then the next day I could be back to this again. And by the way, there's, only, there's not only two things that you can go back and forth in between. There's, I don't know, somebody, I don't, I'm not on Facebook, I don't have Facebook. Somebody tell me how many genders are identifiable on Facebook. Is that what it is? is, there, is it, I, I don't know. Um, I have, be, I have seen some documents that I've had to fill out recently that at least offered three options, male, female, and other. And other. You think to yourself, yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of, of options available to us now. Why? It's because this idea 
that you can't really pin a person down in their identity. There's not a certain identity that they have to commit themselves to. The fourth thing that I've already been harping on so much this morning is that the current view of truth is this, that truth, when people use the word truth, what you should be thinking is, is I can't trust this person because when people start talking about truth, truth is a tool that are used by people in power in order to enforce their view of the world on others. Truth is just a tool. It's not actually whether or not it's true. It's that true is a, tr- truth is a tool. And that's why we have some of the problems that we have. Well, it's just because people in power are saying... Now, what's fascinating is that when postmoderns get in power, they will 100% tell you the way it should be. 100% they will tell you the way it should be. But see, because they haven't been in power long enough yet... They're just making up for lost time. So it's okay for them to do it. It's just not okay for you to do it. Right? We have have this idea that truth is a tool that is being used by people in power in order to enforce their view of the world on others. Well, what happens if it's correct? Nope, it's just a power play. That's all it is. Wait a second. I made a claim. What if the claim is correct? What if the claim is correct? Nope. That's just your view of the world. And because you have power, you're trying to shove it down somebody's throat. All right. I have to take a deep breath right now. And I have to admit openly that I feel like what I've done this morning is given everyone a reason to leave here rather discouraged today. (laughs) Right? Thanks a lot. That's the world I live in. I don't like it. I don't want it. I have to do it. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? So let me just summarize it like this. If there's one word that you want to equate with postmodernism above all else, by the way, power is one that you should equate. They, they have a lot, a lot of what they... they they practice and preach is, is based on power, okay? But, but if there's one word, it's the word relativism, okay? It's why everything is so unclear. Because you can't pin anybody down to anything. It's just, uh, maybe, maybe not. Well, it depends on circumstances, right? It just depends. It's relativism. Forget whether, for example, we used to have discussions about things like gender norms or gender roles, whether they were valid or not, how far do you take them? Now we don't even know if gender's real, so forget roles and norms. We don't even know if gender's real at all, right? So, so that whole argument just goes away. Same with sexuality. Same with morality. I sat with a guy, and I know this is no big deal, um, I'm, I, I'm not at all acting like I was smart in this, but I literally sat down with a guy that was, uh, uh, I was having a meal next to him, and he was talking openly, um, started, struck up a conversation. He's saying, yeah, I think all truth is relative. Everything's relative. What do you mean everything's relative? Well, there's no absolute truth. What about morality? There's no absolute morals. It's all depending on circumstances. It's all just dependent on the circumstances. Nothing absolute. 
I looked at him and I said, then give me your wallet. <laughs> and he said, no, no, give me your wallet. Why? Because I want to pay for my meal. I said, what gives you the right to say that if I took your wallet to pay for my meal, it would be wrong? It's right for me. It's right for me. Right? Now you're sitting there kind of thinking, hey, do you want to live in a world where nobody knows for certain whether it's right or wrong to steal from somebody else? You live in that world and I'll guarantee you one thing. The only end result will be who's got the biggest gun. That's it. Who's got the most power? That's it. You know why? Because if it's not wrong, and it's all dependent on my point of view, and if I have the power to take it from you, then I will, and I can, and there's no one to tell me that I should be held to account for it. Craziness. You start thinking about it in terms of practical applications in the world, and you just say to yourself, this is absurdity. And yet it's what's going on in our world. Everything is relative. Morality is relative. You see, we are in a contest for truth. Listen to this. Relativism. We don't know it about gender, sexuality, morality. We can continue the list. But here's my way of saying it. In this contest for truth, your mind is both the battleground and the prize. There's a war on for your mind, and every mind that gets won is a mind that's going to get used for a certain end. It's the battleground and it's the prize. And my brothers and sisters, please hear this. You, are, you and I are in a contest for truth because in the end there is one thing that matters. The thing that matters is whether or not people know that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. I'm going to tell you right now, you can debate everything else. And I don't care if you win it. If you get agreement on everything that you're right about, and that person doesn't come to faith in Jesus, they go to hell a more informed man or woman. That's it. That's it. You have to battle. Young person, please hear me. You're in a battle for your mind. There's a war on for your mind. Because people know that if they get your mind, your money, your vote, your support, all of it comes with your mind. And I'll guarantee you there's an agenda behind the battle for your mind. 100%. There's an agenda behind it. On the other hand... You're on a battle for your mind. You're also in a battle, listen, not just for the minds of others. What we're really in a battle for is for the souls of others. We're in a battle for the souls of others around us. It's a contest. And you and I as the church have been called to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right. You want to know where we go from here? Here's what I believe. I think these are just the most simple things to say. I'm closing in five minutes tops. Okay. Where do we go from here? I just want to share with you two scripture verses that I believe are key to where we go from here. The first one is John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
The truth is right smack dab in the middle of that, okay? So think about it this way. Think about the word way that comes before it and then life that comes after it. Way, truth, life. How do these words relate to one another? First of all, let me just say this about this verse. We must be Jesus-focused people. Priority number one is not politics. Priority number one is Jesus. That's not our main battle. Jesus is our main battle. You see a revival in this land, I guarantee you politics will change. There's no revival in this land, I guarantee you we're going to see more and, and, and it's going to head in a worse direction from here. Why? Because this form of government is wholly inadequate to any other than a moral people. Amen. That's it. We have to be focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, we must be a Jesus-focused people. People need to know that whatever else they come into contact, when they come into contact with whatever else they come into contact with, the one thing that we're not going to back down on, we're devoted to Jesus. And I just want you to know Jesus. Okay? We're a Jesus-focused people. Everything else is secondary. Why? Because he's the way to the Father. That's the truth that we're presenting. He is the way to the Father. And no man comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said. I am the way. I'm the way. The second thing that we need to remember here is in, the, is in that word life. Please remember this. Truth can get very scholarly, academic. It can get heady. It can also get dogmatic and argumentative. Some people don't want to talk to some people just because... I don't need to fill in the blank, right? Just because nobody wants to be around them. They're obnoxious because they know the truth. Okay? It can get dogmatic and it can get argumentative. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And the life. In other words, we must be a people that are spirit and heart focused. You know what? I can have a whole head full of information. But the question is, I don't mean to get silly about this. I just, I'm about to close, I just preached for an hour. But listen, we started this with our hands raised in worship to God. We'd better not forget that Christianity is not just something that happens in our brains. It has to be something that consumes our whole hearts and fills our hearts. A spirit-filled, heart-filled people that delight themselves in God. You can't just be a one-sided person of a brain. <laughs> You, you got to have, we have to have hearts that are into this. And we have to remember that when we're coming up with people, we're coming up against people or coming face to face with people, the issue is not just informing them or correcting their thinking. It's that we're in a battle for their hearts, that their hearts need to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a life that is found only in Jesus. I believe that we need to be a people who are properly focused in our day. Because if not, everything, everything can just become an intellectual battle where you feel like you're just in one endless debate. And, uh, well, at, the be at best, that's only going to get you so far. We need to be a spirit-filled people 
whose hearts are oriented toward God. The last thing I'll say is this. John chapter 1, verse 17. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And let me just suggest that that's the proper order. That's the proper order. Grace and truth. In other words, if the truth you're going to speak is not first motivated by, seasoned by grace, it might be best not to say it because you might do more harm than good with it. Truth was not intended to be a hammer bashing people's heads in. That's not, not the intention. You know what? If it's true, let the truth do its own work. Let the Holy Spirit convict of the truth. You make sure that the graciousness of your manner doesn't get in the way. Please hear this. Christian, if things keep going the way they're going... I'm going to tell you right now that increasingly, not less, it's, it's already headed this direction. Increasingly, Christianity is going to be labeled hate speech and bigotry because it refuses to agree with the agenda of the day. Okay? We need to know, we need to know that if we act like bigots, we're going to give them evidence for what they're saying. We're going to have to love them and not bow. Love and, and not concede. That idea of a felt, cover, a felt covered fist of iron. When you touch me, I'm soft and fuzzy. When you try to move me, you can't do it. Because the accusation is going to be bigoted, mean-spirited, and you're going to have to be able to look at him. And listen, only Jesus can do this in your heart for real. You can't, you're not. But you're going to have to be able to look at him and say, I love you. And if, and, if, and if it comes to it, you're going to have to realize that, that we're going to need to allow the Holy Spirit to so move us that tears will be able to flow down our cheeks because we're going to know heaven and hell is in the balance for this person. Heaven and hell is in the balance. We are going to be tested as to whether or not we really love the person across from us the way Jesus taught us to. I'm going to close with this. Jesus, when he looks out over Jerusalem, the city that's about to crucify him, he weeps. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times would I have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not? He weeps over the city. He's not looking at the city that's going to crucify him and saying, right grace grace just oozing from the one who was the truth grace oozing from him that's going to have to be us because i tell you this i believe increasingly that grace will be the thing that opens the door to them being willing to hear the truth that you have to share if you're hammering them with the truth you might just cut off their ears we're going to have to love them into the kingdom. We're going to have to love them into the kingdom. We're going to have to see it as a longer-term prospect. Amen? May God give us grace, grace, in ministering to people around us. Young adults, be people of grace that do not budge from the truth.
That was a long word. Do your homework on postmodernism. I encourage you to get as familiar with it as you can. Know. Know as much as you can. But be a people of grace. Was that good enough to make any sense? Did I, did I, is it okay? Okay. I'm not looking for affirmation. I just want to make sure I didn't confuse everybody. Okay. I didn't. All right. Thank you. I'd like to ask you to bow with me, and I want to, I want to just ask that you young adults that are present here, I, I just want you to do a little business with God for a second. You are being told today that the truth of the Bible is just mean-spirited bigotry, and that's not the case at all. What the Bible tells us is for our good. When the Bible gives us an instruction and says something like, thou shalt not commit adultery, it's not because God's trying to ruin our fun, it's because it's the healthiest way to live life. Okay? It's good for us. When the Bible tells us things about sexuality, like it's for a man and a woman, it's not because God is bigoted against other people. It's because it's healthy for us. It's healthy for us. And what we have to do is look at that person that's, that's in a different place and not hate them or get mad at them or try to berate them or even try to fix them. It's just to love them. Why? Because what we've got to remember is what they are living out is hurtful to them. It's hurtful to them. In the end, it's going to destroy them. And man, when you see that happen, you've got to have compassion on that got to break your heart. It's got to break your heart. We've got to be the most loving people around, and we've got to be the most clear people around regarding what truth is. You do business with God for a moment. He might have to put your, put your attention on, on a relationship that you hurt because you were speaking truth to it in a way that you shouldn't. And you might find out there's someone that's very wrong about something that you're going to have to go back to and apologize to because of the way you communicated with them. Humble yourself and do it. Humble yourself. Don't go soft on the truth. But put representing Jesus above everything else. And if you haven't represented him well in some circumstance, then the only thing to do is to say, please forgive me. Please forgive me. Maybe you found yourself waffling on some truth that you need to hold on to. Lord, help me to be faithful to the truth of your word. Help me to be faithful to it. Make that your prayer. Just take a second, and if you do nothing else, just pray. Say, Lord, help me to be as effective in my world as I can be. I have some challenges in my world. Lord, give me the grace for it. I'm going to be quiet for two minutes. You respond in prayer, and then I'm going to close in prayer, okay?